Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. Hello, I'm your host, John Bunton, filling in for Ben Eagles. Uh, When not guest hosting podcasts, I cover state and local politics for Governing Magazine, uh, Washington, D.C.-based monthly. Um, Our guest today is Larry Bartels, one of America's most distinguished political scientists. He's also one of the most provocative, I would argue, for reasons which will soon become clear. Uh, He's the May Worth and Shane Chair of Public Policy and Social Science at Vanderbilt University and the co-director of Vanderbilt's Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions. Larry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, Today we're going to do something a little different. Normally this show focuses on local politics, policy, or issues, but today we're going to talk about national politics. And before we begin, I want to give a little background on, on why that is. So the origins for this episode go back to the 2016 presidential election. Uh, Like many uh, journalists, I was surprised by President Trump's election. Uh, It also made it clear to me um, how little we in the press uh, really understood about what was happening politically. Uh, Why should we turn to the same people, people like myself, who failed to predict uh, that election to explain it? Uh, I wanted a different perspective. So I turned to uh, political science. I started following political scientists on Twitter and reading their books whenever I could. The first book that I read was a book by Larry and Christopher Aiken, Democracy for Realists, Why Elections Do Not Produce Responsive Governance. This is a shocking book. It takes aim at some of the very foundations of our democracy I want to start by discussing it and discussing Professor Bartel's ideas. Uh, We'll then move on to the subject of how group identity is affecting our democracy. We'll talk about what's driving polarization and how that's affecting politics at the national, state, and local level. I want to start with this idea, with what you call the folk theory of democracy. What is the folk theory of democracy? It's not a political theory in the sense that you can point to classic figures down through the centuries who've carefully enunciated and defended this idea about how democracy works, but I think it's an important part of political culture and especially of American political culture. Basically, the idea is that the democratic process allows citizens to steer the ship of state by casting votes in elections for people who will implement some particular set of policies and people can judge those policies and then change their votes in the next election in a way that steers the ship a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right. But basically the idea is that we as citizens control what the government does. Right. And the idea is that is that citizens are, we have an obligation as citizens, we're supposed to be informed, we're supposed to have a set of policy preferences that we think would serve us and serve the country best. And we're supposed to elect people who reflect those ideas. That's kind of, that's what we're all taught in Civics 101. Yes? Yes. And how well does that happen in reality? Well, 
there's a lot of variation from person to person in terms of their relationship to politics and the political system. And I would say that the refined picture of what citizens are like or what they should be like is largely based on an idealistic and therefore unrealistic view of what a small fraction of people, the kinds of people who listen to this podcast, are like. Um, they are people who spend a lot of time thinking about politics and talking about politics. Um, but even they uh, are more likely to be able to defend their political preferences with reference to policy preferences than they are actually to formulate their preferences on the basis of some detailed understanding of political issues and what kinds of solutions we need for the, the problems that face the country. Uh, most people are much less engaged in politics and have a harder time rationalizing their behavior, but they too, as best we can tell by studying what they actually do, uh, mostly come up with preferences that justify their political behavior rather than serve as a cause of their political behavior. So when political scientists have taken a look at how well voters understand the positions of their parties or how they reconcile their own positions, it, it gets hazy. As a result, um, political scientists have sought to explain voting behavior in other ways. And one of the most common explanations has been to explain things retrospectively, to say that, well, voters aren't well-informed about political issues. They're busy leading their lives. They have other, other interests, other things they're doing. But perhaps they vote on the basis of uh, how well the economy is doing, how they perceive the economy. Perhaps that's the dynamic that's at the heart of voting behavior. Um, how compelling an explanation is that? There is a lot of that going on. If you try to account for historical variation in presidential election outcomes, it's striking how far you can get just by knowing whether the economy was booming or tanking in the months leading up to the election. So it, in the months leading up to the election. Right. And the scholars who first began to notice that fact interpreted it as a good sign for democracy, that people were actually aware of how things were going and were making judgments based on how things were going. And it was viewed as being a kind of alternative to a pessimistic view that they didn't know much about specific policy issues and were unlikely to be making the kinds of decisions that we often in our idealistic theories expect them to make. So on that hand, it's a really important corrective to the way we think about elections. The downside is that it probably doesn't work as well from the standpoint of accountability as we would like, um, given that their focus on the short term and their ability to rationalize what's going on in the world in ways that are consistent with their partisanship and their difficulty in actually connecting outcomes to the specific decisions of specific political leaders means that the substantive content of these reactions is probably a lot less edifying than we would like to think. Yes. In your book, you write, in well-functioning democratic systems, parties that win office are inevitably defeated at a subsequent election. 
Why is that? You know, what what is happening there? Perhaps you could talk about what some political scientists have described as the thermostatic nature of American politics. Yeah, the idea is that the public turns against the incumbent president's ideology or policy platform uh, after he's been in office for a while. Uh, So you see shifts over time in the overall level of support for liberal or conservative policies. But surprisingly to most people, those shifts are often counter-cyclical. So um, when George Bush was in office, the electorate became more liberal over most of his time in office. And then almost as soon as Barack Obama was elected, they started becoming more conservative in their views again. Um, One way to interpret that is that they see what the president is doing and respond by asking for less of it. My guess is that it has partly to do with that, but probably more to do with their perceptions of what the policy climate is like, because these reversals often set in so quickly that they probably don't have much to do with what the president has actually accomplished, but more to do with their perception of what the president is trying to accomplish. So that's one factor. I think there are a variety of factors that are likely to be relevant. Specific policy decisions are likely to alienate more people than they please. The people who are pleased by them are likely to take them for granted and move on, whereas the people who are hurt by them or at least disagree with them are likely to hold a grudge. And so there's a effect that's been called a coalition of minorities effect that gradually over time the incumbents are likely to alienate larger and larger set of maybe small but important constituencies. Um, There's also the likelihood that they're going to run out of popular things to do. Often when presidents get elected, they get reelected because there's uh, an agenda that hasn't been pursued that they offer to pursue. But then once they do that, they run out of popular things to to accomplish uh, and press on with ideologically consistent but less publicly popular policy proposals. Part of it, I think, is that there's a kind of burnout among the people who are involved in the administration. Often the A-list people will leave office after a few years and be replaced by people who have less experience or less experience in the particular roles that they're being slotted into. Sometimes there's a kind of accumulation of scandals Uh, that make it harder for the administration to accomplish things. So I think there are a variety of factors that uh, are relevant here, but the overall pattern is pretty strongly to make it harder for the same party to win over and over and over, and therefore to ensure that we'll have at least uh, alternation between parties and teams of political leaders over time. So with elections, we've, we've established that how the economy is doing weeks, months, perhaps, before a presidential election is a very, plays a very important role. You've also taken a look at how the electric blames the president for even natural disasters over which he could have no conceivable control. In your book, you talk about the way in which voters punished Woodrow Wilson for a series, a spate of shark attacks off the New Jersey shore. And you speculate that Uh, Al Gore was hurt in his presidential uh, quest because of a severe drought. Could you just could you sort of explain the evidence for for that proposition? That is really that's really hard to wrap your your head around. Yeah, um, 
one of the difficulties with thinking about retrospective voting is that even experts disagree among themselves about what or how much the president and his administration actually should be held responsible for. We see these correlations between good and bad economic times and election outcomes, but in any particular instance, it's hard to say how much of the economic success or failure is attributable in any real way to the president's policies and performance. And so one of the things we did in our book was to try to think about some extreme cases in which it would be pretty clear that the incumbent wasn't responsible and see whether we observed similar kinds of reactions from voters even in those instances. So we looked at the shark attacks off the Jersey Shore and found that uh, people in New Jersey did indeed seem to punish President Wilson for the collapse of their tourist economy on the Jersey Shore in the summer of 1916. Um, But that was just one pretty unusual and localized case. So we also looked at the impact of drought and flood conditions on the re-election prospects of presidents and their parties over the entire 20th century and found that there was a pretty strong relationship between parts of the country that were hit by droughts or floods in any particular election year and shifts in their support for the president's party. Now, some of those shifts were probably attributable to actual efforts that the presidents made to deal with these crisis situations. But if you think about how a sensible voter would reward or punish elected officials, it seems as though you'd expect uh, on average that the performance of the president would be about average and that you'd observe roughly a similar uh, rate of people punishing the incumbents for worse than average performances and rewarding the incumbents for better than average performances in response to these natural disasters. But it turns out that there's a pretty strong preponderance of voters punishing the incumbents, uh, which suggests to us that it's really a punishment for these conditions themselves rather than for anything that the incumbent has actually done to address them. So at one point, you uh, and your co-author write, from the viewpoint of governmental representativeness and accountability, election outcomes are essentially random choices among the available parties. Musical chairs, elections that throw the bums out, typically do not produce genuine policy mandates, not even when they're landslides. They simply put a different elite coalition in charge. That's surprising. That's, that's, a, that's a startling way of looking at elections. Well... It is. I think it uh, depends in part on the political context and the political context that we're referring to there because it's a pretty common pattern in the U.S. and most other democracies is a situation where the underlying strength of the two major parties or coalitions and multi-party systems is more or less equal. There are a lot of people who are going to vote for the Republican Party no matter what the conditions on election day are. And there are a lot of people who are going to vote for the Democratic Party, no matter what the conditions are. But if there are roughly equal numbers in those two groups, then the balance and the outcome of the election is mostly going to be swayed by people who aren't attached to either of those coalitions and who 
are more or less responding to these very idiosyncratic short-term forces. Mm -hmm. And so these people who do make the, who do decide these outcomes, are these uh, well-informed voters, less well-informed voters? And you know, how big is this population? Well, how big it is is hard to pin down exactly because there are you know people with varying degrees of attachment to the two parties. Um, in surveys nowadays, it looks like something like 10 or maybe 15 percent of the public are in a real sense not strongly attached to either party and those are probably the people who are most likely to be up for grabs in any particular election. Those people tend pretty disproportionately to be relatively uninformed and relatively uninterested in politics because certainly in the polarized partisan environment that we're in now, most people who are paying attention and are interested and are uh, following the news have chosen upsides one way or the other by this point. Let's talk about the realistic part of uh, democracy for realists. You are critical of the idea that voters vote as individuals, that voters educate themselves, choose their policy preferences, and then line up with whatever party reflects those policy preferences. Could you just expand on that idea a bit? Yeah. If you think about any particular individual, they're obviously in a more or less dense social network where they're influenced by a variety of people and especially by a variety of attachments to identifiable social groups. It may be their connection to a particular church. It may be their occupational group. It may be neighborhood groups, ethnic groups. There are all kinds of attachments that people have. But one of the most important attachments certainly in the contemporary environment is to the political parties themselves. We've seen a pretty substantial increase over the last 30 or 40 years in the relative strength of people's commitment to the Democratic or Republican parties. There, the implications are much clearer. So regardless of an attachment to a particular political group, if I think of myself as a Republican or think of myself as a Democrat, um, flooded all the time with messages about what the implications of that attachment are for my political views and my political behavior, and uh, especially people who are politically active and politically informed are likely over time to absorb a lot of their worldview from their attachment to one or the other of the parties. A book that I recently uh, read and enjoyed on the subject is by was written by a, a political scientist at the University of Maryland, Liliana Mason. It's called Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity. In it, uh, Professor Mason argues that our identities increasingly line up and reinforce each other. We seem to have less cross-cutting identities these days. Um, that has had a number of significant impacts on the way our politics works. It makes partisan identification a more important part of how we see ourselves. It makes us less inclined to compromise. She suggests it makes us more emotionally reactive. We get angrier about politics. And she points to areas such as religious affiliation, uh, where uh, white regular churchgoers have become strikingly more Republican, for instance. Uh, um, is that, do you think, uh, 
an ex, a sort of a, an accepted or a debated set of propositions in the world of political science? I think the general picture is widely accepted among political scientists. The example of religion is an interesting one. I've been involved in a study recently looking at the evolving political attitudes of a cohort of people who graduated from high school in 1965. They were interviewed as they graduated from high school, and then they were re-interviewed in 1973 and 1982 and 1997. So this is the longest-running continuous study of people's political attitudes. And if you look at the evolution of their views, uh, we did a, a paper looking at the role of religion in people's lives and the connection between religion and politics. And there's some support there for the standard story about uh, hot-button social religious issues becoming activated and people changing their partisan uh, alignment uh, in response to that. But you also see a fair amount of people gravitating toward particular views of the world on the basis of partisanship. Maybe the most striking example, which we talk about in Democracy for Realists, is the issue of abortion, one of the most fraught and significant moral issues certainly facing the American political system in the late 20th century. And there's been a lot of writing about how people's views about abortion precipitated shifts in their partisanship and produced this new alignment in which the Republican Party became the party of pro-life people and the Democratic Party became the party of pro-choice people. And there are some movements that you can observe of that sort. But if you follow people over time, you find out that there's also a lot of people who are shifting their views about abortion to bring them into line with the views of the political party that they supported all along. So um, Democrats who happen to be pro-life uh, before the parties took strong contrasting positions on this issue pretty frequently shifted their views on abortion over a period of 15 years to become pro-choice. And on the other hand, uh, Republicans who found themselves out of step with their party on the issue often shifted their views rather than their partisanship. So even on an issue of that kind of significance, you find a fair amount of accommodation to and persuasion by uh, the party establishment uh, shaping people's political views. That is fascinating. I was recently surprised to read that in the early 70s, um, the Southern Baptist Convention attitude or I think even official policy statement on abortion was was not clearly uh, pro-life, yeah, that Catholics were strongly pro-life, but Southern Baptists were not the uh, transformation of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and evangelicals into conserva into you know, strong conservatives. That, that was not always the case. That's something that happened uh, during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And in that case, you often at least you have a um, overlap between the messages that they're getting from their party and the messages that they're getting from their church. And so uh, in those cases, you'd expect the impact to be uh, especially strong. It's easy to understand how as identities line up, that does make it harder for us to see points of commonality with people who have different identities. How concerned are you about 
the current level of polarization? I think it is concerning. I think we often don't have a very clear idea about exactly why it's concerning, much less what to do about it. I think one useful point of perspective is to realize that although there's a lot of talk about the high level of polarization in the current era, people often say it's the most polarized political era ever. Usually what that means is that in the relatively short period for which we have the kind of data that they're analyzing to document the level of polarization, we haven't seen anything like it. Um, but I think if you go back in political history, the current situation is probably more common than we often realize. Certainly the period in the late 19th century looks a lot like the present era in terms of the relative closeness of elections and the, at least to the extent that we can tell based on the qualitative evidence that we have available to us, the intense partisanship of individual voters through that era. Um, the 1960s were an era of very strong political polarization. It wasn't partisan polarization because the issues on the table at that point divided the parties and especially divided the Democratic Party. But you know, certainly the um, debate over the Vietnam War was as intense as anything that's going on in the current era. There's a interesting lesson about how much political scientists can tell ordinary people about their political system and how to improve it. One of the most famous interventions of political scientists in the actual operation of American politics was a report that was issued in the early 1950s by a committee of experts uh, appointed by the American Political Science Association to write about the American party system. And what they called for was a more responsible party system. They were unhappy about the fact that the Republican and Democratic parties were too similar in terms of their platforms and didn't offer people a clear choice. And as a result, there wasn't enough at stake in elections. Of course, the period. Oh, thank, thanks a lot. So yeah, the conditions scientists. that we have now are exactly the ones that they were calling for, and political scientists are wringing their hands about how terrible that is. So I think part of the lesson is just that there are good features and bad features of any likely configuration that we can suppose, and we're more likely to be focusing on the disadvantages than we are on the advantages of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. So hopefully any policymakers listening to this podcast will be very cautious about whatever recommendations Larry has to make, has to offer for our political system. Always a good idea. So let's, while we're talking about group identity, let's talk about probably the most important group identity in American society, and that is race. One of the early books that I read in my political science reading tier was a book called Ideology in America by Christopher Ellis and James Stimson. They identify uh, that 1964 as a huge year, a hugely significant year or period in American politics. And they write, between 1963, when the Kennedy assassination made Lyndon Johnson president, and 1967, the third year of LBJ's Great Society, the ranks of self-identified liberals fell by 10 and a half points, about one-fourth, and never recovered. That movement would have been huge if it had been temporary. As a permanent shift, it's the dominant story of American politics in the 20th century. The collapse of liberalism. They go on to suggest that that had, uh, was closely tied to 
the passage of the Civil Rights Bill, 1965, uh, the Great Society. Uh, how compelling do you think that argument is? Well, I mean, one fact to bear in mind is that 1964, or maybe 1965, was the high watermark of liberalism in recent American history. And so it's not surprising when you look at a moment like that to see that there's subsequent erosion or retrenchment. Um, it's a little hard to know what people mean by liberalism or conservatism when they express attachment to one of those labels and surveys, especially in that era. There seemed to be a good deal of confusion about what the actual implications of those words were. There was a famous study that was published in 1964 in which they actually looked at people's responses to open-ended questions about what they mean by conservative or liberal insofar as they could attach one of those labels to the Democratic Party and the other to the Republican Party or to themselves. And often what people talked about when they said that they were conservative was that they were careful with their money um, or that they you know, didn't like experimentation. And those are certainly aspects of conservatism in conventional language, but they're probably not ones that have any very direct implications for specific policies. I think there has been some backlash against the uh, atmosphere and the policies that were adopted in the early and mid-1960s, as there has been against most eras of major political change in the U.S. That's a valid point. And of course, other things were happening in 1964 specifically. That's the year that uh, the political scientist James Q. Wilson identified as the year that uh, many things, in his opinion, went wrong in America. We started to see a pronounced increase in crime. There were numerous social indicators, decline of traditional marriage, which he and others have argued also had a very significant impact on our society. So a lot of things were happening uh, in the 1960s. And I think it's important to know that insofar as there was a response, it wasn't entirely or directly a response to particular policy actions. One of the things that Aiken and I did in Democracy for Realists was to look at the evolution of partisanship among white Southerners through this era and the picture that you would get uh, based on the story that you spun out is that you'd see a pretty direct and immediate shift with white Southerners who were conservative in their racial policy views shifting to the Republican Party and those who were liberal in their racial policy views sticking with the Democratic Party. But in fact, that process occurred over a period of 30 or 40 years rather than in an immediate response to the policies. And indeed, insofar as we could tell, it looked like it had as much or more to do with a kind of general sense that the Democratic Party was no longer the party of people like them. So their the strength of their identity as white Southerners seemed to have as much to do with the shifting or not shifting as their preferences about specific policies like school integration, which only sorted themselves out gradually over a period of decades. There is this sort of striking reorientation uh, of, of uh, white voters towards the Republican Party. Um, at one point in her book, Uncivil Agreement, Liliana Mason writes that 
by 1988, 49% of Northern whites identify with the Republican Party, a 17 percentage point increase in the Republican partisanship of Northern whites since 1972. So 72 to 88, a 17 point shift in Republican identification among Northern whites. That's a that's a really big change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've so uh, there are a lot of people who a lot of political scientists and others who say, well, this is a racial this is a racial backlash. You've I think pushed back a little bit on that kind of simple interpretation. Um, at one point, you write the simplest interpretation of these patterns of partisan changes is that the Southern whites' conversion to the GP was not primarily about racial policy issues, but about white Southern identity. Unpack that for me. What do you mean? Um, these people had grown up in a world in which the Democratic Party was a fundamental part of their lives as Southerners. The Democrats had a near monopoly of political power in the South for most of the preceding century. Um, and so insofar as they thought of themselves as white Southerners, they were likely to think of themselves as Democrats more or less as a matter of course. The changes that began in the 1960s, the policy positions of the Democratic Party at the national level, the enfranchisement of African Americans in many parts of the South, um, the reactions to all of that in the country as a whole, I think broke that sense of obvious connection between their identities as white Southerners and their identities as Democrats and left many of them up for grabs really for the first time in their lifetimes and I would say freed them to gravitate toward what would be under other circumstances and given the shape of the national party system a more natural position as Republicans. what was odd was not so much the way these people moved, but how the party system had managed to repress race as a national issue and um, continue a really very peculiar coalition between mostly liberal northern whites and mostly conservative southern Democrats through the middle part of the 20th century. And so uh, once that began to erode, then I think people began to gravitate toward the Republican Party on the basis of other aspects of their identity that seem to square better with the Republicans than with the Democrats at a national level. This was something that had already started to happen to some extent in the 1950s as the Republican Party began to build strength in parts of the South, but I think was accelerated by the developments of the 60s and 70s. And then, as I said, continued gradually over most of the rest of the century. We've talked about gradual change and the stickiness of political identities, but I'd like to ask you about an area where it seems like there was very a dramatic uh, reorienta- political reorientation. Uh, and specifically, I'm thinking about uh, the impact of the Obama administration on how white voters and particularly um, non-college kid white voters identified politically. Uh, so in her book on civil agreement, uh, Liliana Mason writes that in 2007, whites were just as likely to call themselves Democrats as they were to call themselves Republicans. 
But by 2010, whites were 12 points more likely to be Republicans than Democrats. Uh, she further notes that this sort of white flight from Democratic Party occurred almost entirely among whites without a college degree. College-educated whites went towards the Democratic Party. Uh, by 2015, white voters who had a high school degree or less were 24 percentage points more Republican than Democrats. White voters with some college education but no four-year degree were 19 points more Republican. I mean, this is a really quick shift that seemed to happen. What do you think was happening during the Obama administration to trigger this striking change in political identification? Again, I think you have to be a little bit careful about baselines. 2007 was a good year for Democrats because the Bush administration had become increasingly unpopular over the course of Bush's second term. Uh, 2010 was, by comparison, a not very good time for Democrats because the Obama administration seemed to be mired in a at least partly unsuccessful response to the Great Recession. So I think some of the shift that you're describing is um, overall fluctuation in the popularity of the party. But there has been some real shift over time in the preferences and especially, I think, in the partisan loyalties of people who uh, are often described as working class uh, white voters, but who really, um, as you said more precisely, are people without college educations. I think part of that does have to do with their reaction to Obama and the Obama administration. I think the 2016 election probably added to that push and accelerated it by providing them with a strong alternative uh, voice for what had been, I think, even in the Republican Party, a at least partially repressed set of attitudes about uh, issues like immigration, um, where the Republican establishment for a significant period of time had avoided taking the stand that was popular among a fair number of their strongest grassroots uh, supporters. But uh, when Donald Trump came along and gave voice to that uh, set of concerns, uh, I think he helped to precipitate some further movement among that set of people. And so if you look at the deviations from partisanship in the 2016 voting patterns, um, probably the strongest deviations are first among these less educated white voters who became somewhat more Republican than they had been, and secondly, among the college-educated white voters who became somewhat more democratic than they had been. I think in part that reflects their differential responses to the specifics of Trump's candidacy and to all the criticism that he got for some of his um, rhetoric and uh, positions. I kept thinking that the New York Times was convinced that if they just ran one more 5,000-word story about how Trump was violating some norm that the American people would see the light and turn against him. And for some set of relatively well-educated people, there was a little of that. But a lot of these less-educated voters that you're 
referring to are not people who've ever been all that invested in the New York Times definition of what is or isn't appropriate behavior. And so, if anything, they were attracted to Trump's unconventional rhetoric and positions. Well, a recent book that I really enjoyed um, is titled Identity Crisis, the 2016 Presidential Campaign and the Battle for the Meaning of America. I believe that you recommend it or featured on the syllabus for your the course that you're currently teaching about Trump and the American presidency. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and uh, the account that it presents of the 2016 election um, is – Strikingly different in some ways from sort of the media, the media account that we hear a lot about. Um, it makes the point that Republicans rallied to Trump, and in the way that Republicans typically do, uh, that in certain ways, uh, uh, President Trump was not a particularly strong Republican candidate. And what was and makes one of the arguments it makes is that, of course, he activated Republican base in an unusual way, but that there were always significant numbers of economic liberals, for instance, among Republican voters who responded to his protectionist sentiments and so forth. And that's an interesting way of looking at things. Um, you know, it also spends a lot of time suggesting that uh, President Trump invited uh, voters to. Uh, look at things through, I believe it uses the, ter the term, a racialized lens. Uh, and uh, it is striking to me at least the extent to which Republicans do seem to uh, believe that uh, white people face significant discrimination in American society and in some cases even more discrimination than black people. Um, is that something new? Um, I think there's always been a fair amount of pushback among many white voters about what they view as the unfairness of affirmative action for African Americans and other minority groups. I think it's become more conscious and more powerful lately. Um, part of that has to do specifically with Trump's rhetoric, but I think part of it has to do as well with a broader discourse about demographic change in America and the shadow of a shift to becoming a majority-minority country. Um, there's some really interesting psychological studies where people are reminded of that simple demographic fact, and it seems to have pretty powerful effects on their attitudes about the political parties and about a variety of views, even views about issues that aren't in any very obvious way connected to demographics or race or immigration. Right. I mean, if I remember correctly, it, it, if you tell white people about the changing demographics of American society, it makes, it makes them identify as more Republican. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting features here is that even political scientists and other social scientists who've thought and written a lot about identity didn't until recently think about white identity as being an instance because everyone just took it for granted. Uh, it was just sort of sitting there in the background. But now there's been a really interesting increasing focus on white identity and what it is and how it's activated and what its political implications are going to be. I suppose any conversation of this sort, it has to include a discussion of President Trump. As a political scientist, 
What strikes you as being most noteworthy about the campaign that he ran in 2016? And what strikes, what's the most striking aspects of his uh, term as president so far? Well, one striking aspect of the campaign that I don't think quite fits into the way you frame the question but is worth emphasizing is how successful Trump turned out to be in winning the support of Republican Party identifiers in spite of the fact that you know most of the living previous Republican presidential candidates were opposed to his candidacy. Um, much of the conservative intellectual establishment was opposed to his candidacy. Um, there was less outright opposition, but a fair amount of lukewarmness among Republican elected officials. Um, and none of that turned out to matter to a lot of Republicans. He looks from the data that we have available as though over 90% of Republicans ended up voting for him, which is consistent with the numbers we've seen for previous Republican candidates. And many of the political scientists who were trying to forecast the outcome of the election forecast a close race based on these fundamental factors, how long the party had been in power, the state of the economy, and so on, but then said, but of course, that assumes a typical candidate, and Trump's not a typical candidate, so we expect that he's going to lose. Uh, but in terms of voting patterns, uh, he ended up looking a lot like a typical candidate. Um, that, I think, is quite striking. He did it in spite, I think, of... Uh, running a campaign that was pretty different from the Republican establishment positions on uh, a variety of specific issues. You mentioned his liberalism or at least downplaying of conservatism on at least some economic issues. He spoke out in favor of Social Security and the safety net and talked about um, building some big infrastructure program. Those were positions that were unconventional for a Republican candidate and seemed to have attracted some support from people who were culturally conservative but economically more moderate or liberal. Um, but the most important ones, I think, were to take a much more vocal and explicit stand in favor of cultural conservatism, mostly not as defined in terms of traditional religious and moral issues like abortion, although there was some of that, but really in terms of um, the definition of the American nation and its cultural implications. I did a survey last November of the attitudes of Republicans and Democrats and how they differed across a whole range of not only policy issues, but attitudes toward social groups and toward social problems. And what really distinguished Trump's strongest supporters was what I labeled cultural conservatism, but the specific kinds of attitudes that were most strongly implicated in that measure were things like concern about discrimination against whites and the notion that people who don't respect the American flag don't belong in the country and antipathy toward immigrants and Muslims and um, basically the kinds of attitudes that Trump very skillfully uh, drew on in 
talking both during the campaign and subsequently about America and where it is and what it should be. So your take on the ability of elections as they are currently organized in this country to hold policymakers accountable or to express policy preferences, it's rather pessimistic if, if I'm reading you correctly. It doesn't seem that you think that elections as they currently function are great mechanisms for accountability. The electoral system doesn't seem to result in an outcome where policymakers pursue the ideas that the population at large has. Well, I think policymakers mostly pursue the ideas that they campaigned on. And so in that sense, there's a connection, a strong connection between the outcome of the election and what happens in the course of subsequent policy. So I don't want to be seen as supporting the kind of simplistic view that there really isn't any difference between Republicans and Democrats and it doesn't matter who wins. Um, I do want to say that who wins is mostly not defined by their policy preferences and the correspondence issue by issue between what they propose to do and what a majority of the American public want to happen. One of the problems with what we call the folk theory of democracy is that it implies that political power stems from the fact of elections and that anyone who turns out to vote is therefore going to have a significant say in shaping what the government does. That turns out not to work very well, in part, I think, because elections aren't as big a part of the overall process of policymaking as um, the folk theory would like us to think. But that raises the question of which individuals and groups have clout within the policymaking process. And that clout mostly stems not uh, from individuals, but from these well-organized political groups. And so people's attachments to the groups are important. Uh, the relative influence of the groups are important. The way people are connected to the groups and can hold the groups themselves accountable for their political actions is important. So I think what we need is a stimulation of the pluralistic connections between individuals and groups that are sufficiently well-organized and sufficiently powerful to actually um, have a say in the policymaking process. That's a fascinating perspective. So if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, in, instead of thinking in terms of elections and the aggregate, aggregation of individual votes, we should think more about groups contending for power and influence in an ongoing policymaking process. And that's something that corporate America is in, actively engaged in, you know, all the time. You know, affluent Americans, certain interest groups, obviously, are very engaged in that process. But uh, it sounds like it's something that lower-income Americans and certain other groups are not engaged with very much at all, and and that's a a, a fundamental problem. And how 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 in the how do you stimulate that that type of engagement that seems like uh, such a heavy lift well i think it is because the problem is not just to stimulate the engagement but to channel it in directions that we have at least some reason to think are going to be politically consequential um i not a big fan of social media as a general matter but one of the things i think is distracting about 
social media in the political context is that it encourages people to express themselves in ways that probably are not likely to have a lot of impact on um, the political process and the policymaking process. I think organization to be successful probably has to be less episodic and more long-term than that and to involve a lot of organization and um, activities by organizations that aren't simply catering to the momentary enthusiasms of the people who are affiliated with them or associated with them in a casual way. Um, I just want to conclude, you've been so kind with your time, Professor Bartels, with a question about state and local government. That is the normal beat um, of the National Sounding Board and of Governing Magazine. Local local government in particular, um, for a long time and still to some extent, has, has been seen in many cities and in Nashville as a, as a nonpartisan area in the most well, not the most recent mayoral election, but the previous mayoral election, and more generally, you're seeing national politics reaching down into local politics. It may be inevitable that that trend continues. Should we be trying to protect local politics from partisanship? Should we be trying to preserve local politics as a nonpartisan area of policymaking? I'm not sure how you would protect it even if you wanted to. I think this is in part a reflection of the <clears throat> excuse me, general partisan polarization of the current era. If you look at state legislative elections, it's been true for a long time that the seat swings in any given election in state legislatures correlate strongly with the seat swings in congressional elections in spite of the fact that state legislatures are mostly dealing with a different set of issues and the president's success or failure really ought to be, from a logical point of view, pretty irrelevant to most state legislative elections. Um, and I think, as you say, the same thing is happening increasingly with local elections. I think that's not surprising because most people have pretty limited bandwidth for dealing with politics and it's a hugely useful simplification for them to be able to think about partisanship as a way to gauge the who's on their side in an unfamiliar political situation. We have a kind of ideology that local government is closer to the people and they're more likely to have well-formulated views about local politics and to be able to engage in a straightforward way with local political issues. In fact, all the evidence is to the contrary, that people pay more attention to and know more about national politics than they do about the politics in their own communities. Um, and so to imagine that people would absorb all of the differences in policy proposals between competing candidates for the mayorship um, is probably even more unrealistic than to imagine that they'll absorb all the differences in the policy proposals of presidential candidates or gubernatorial candidates. A final question. Could you recommend some books for people who want to read more in this area? Well, I think the ones that you've mentioned over the course of our conversation are really useful and interesting ones. Um, Identity Crisis by Sides and Tesler and Vavrik, which focuses on the 2016 election. Another one that I've mentioned um, by my co-author on the project about the people who graduated from high school in 1965, Catherine Kramer, 
has a book called The Politics of Resentment, which is based on uh, a series of conversations over almost a decade with people in mostly rural areas in Wisconsin and following their attitudes about government and the political system and their place in society and turned out uh, to be a kind of prescient picture of people who were often at least depicted as being decisive in the 2016 election. Uh, Wisconsin was one of the previously Democratic states that flipped to Trump in 2016, and um, the kinds of people who were responsible for that flip are, by and large, the people that she's talking about. And I think she provides a really nicely textured portrait of their sense of frustration with the political establishment and with the way government works. Um, So those are certainly two that I would recommend. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Been most generous. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.